Subscribe Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, June 9th, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. We were just doing some follow-up that's about something we said in the Patreon, so I'm not sure to do with that. So maybe I can get in a little Patreon plug. Last week we did Half-Baked Ideas. Rebecca pitched one of my half-baked ideas to her to her Bob, and Bob, against his inclination, really against the better <laughs> wisdom of all humans, maybe conceded that I was on to something. And mm-hmm. we got some other feedback from people. It might be on to something with, with um, it's it really to eating food. So those of you who listen to the Patreon show, you know, everyone else, that's just a tease to try to get you to be interested once again in listening to that. Speaking of, I'll continue on that moment for a minute. Right after we record this, we're recording next week's bonus episode. I'm very excited and I'm very hurt. My feelings are hurt by the the assignment we've <laughs> tasked ourselves with. It was really hard homework. Which is, we're looking at the books of the year 2000 and we're power ranking the top 10. We'll talk about what that means. Maybe we'll even make it up a little bit as we go along to see if Rebecca are even coming with the shared expectations. But basically looking at the 10 most important influential books of the year 2000. And I think, I don't remember where I may have said this before, but I don't remember why I was looking at the books of the year 2000, but our shared Venn diagram really starts (laughs) to emerge here. I think it's an important time in both of our reading lives. It's 2000. I'm graduating from college, high school. I'm graduating from college and going to grad school. I've moved from peak insufferability to peak humility really in with mm-hmm. a span of nine mm-hmm. months this happens you are in high school right right yep right? i'm a are senior in high school, in high school? Mm-hmm. you're a senior in high school and you you are now a book nerd fully yep. fledged book nerd at this I'm point like and carrying around a copy of the scarlet letter hoping someone will notice and ask me right. about it so we're very vulnerable people in a lot of ways <laughs> when it comes and i read a lot of these front list titles at this point i think you probably did too some of our faves you've heard us talk about. It's going to get ugly. It's going to get ugly when we get down to 10, 11, or 12, when we're trying to figure <laughs> wait, out what wait, makes the 11 one. or 12? Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I mean, prepared with the top 10, Jeff O'Neill. Well, you have honorable we can, mentions. I'm just saying, true. but we're gonna, what, we're gonna, what we're going to try to do is you're going to have your 10, and I'm going to have my 10, and then we're going to average our placements to see what the real top 10 is. So if she has it at 2 and I have it at 5, that's a 3.5 placement. So we'll see mm-hmm. um, what goes on there. But it'll be a nice trip <laughs> down memory lane. It's going to be fun. One of the other things that folks let us know about over on the wheelhouse, which you can join at patreon.com slash book riot podcast, was as we were talking about sort of our ideal setups on this show recently, our ideal setups for an independent bookstore, we were making the like dogs and cafes and the bookstore needs to have everything. And then, you know, in the US, you cannot have dogs and cafes in the same place because of health codes unless they are service animals. And some of our non-US listeners were appalled by this and let me know that in Europe, you can have a dog and a cafe in your bookstore. And indeed, many bookstores have this. Um, So it's been a really nice run here. Um, But I'm going to be moving to Europe unless we're willing to, you know, set up our tax jurisdiction for book rent over there. So thanks for recruiting me, European wheelhouse <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I, I guess I understand why you don't have dogs in restaurants, but could we make some kind of like, is there a line, like put some tape on the ground, like you can come up to the register. You don't, you don't go in the back of the house. Right. It does seem to like everyone, you know, people's yellow labs coming into the cafe for, a, you know, a, 
mozzarella sandwich or something, a cup of coffee. Is the public health really in danger here? I, I don't quite understand that. So it's tough. Europe, great things about Europe. Dogs and cafes mm-hmm. is uh, one of them there. Okay, we're going to go do a our first sponsor break and then come back and talk about the news of the week. All right. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Um, where do you want to start? There, why don't you walk us through, this is just an update. We've said what we're going to say yeah. about this, this obscenity suit in, in Virginia and what's, what's happening. Right. So a few weeks ago, we were discussing, just in case you're, this is a recap for y'all, or if you missed that episode, um, that there is a politician in Virginia Beach, which is about an hour from where I am in Richmond, um, who is working with an attorney to sue Barnes & Noble, one particular Barnes & Noble location for selling genderqueer and a court of mist and fury on the grounds that they are obscene and are available in the Barnes and Noble for unrestricted viewing by minors. Um, You can revisit that episode to hear all of the things we have to say about what that is. You probably know what they are already. Um, But that case is going forward. A judge reviewed the order and determined that there may be reason to consider these books to be obscene. So that case is going forward. The ACLU is involved, a bunch of other, uh, you know, First Amendment uh, kinds of organizations are involved. This will be political. It might be a circus. Who knows how much, you know, 
further it will get, uh, but it is indeed proceeding. So you can read more about the details of how it's proceeding in this piece by uh, Andrew Albanese over at Publishers Weekly, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, but that is a thing that is happening. It's not what you want. May your efforts fail. I can't say yes. it enough uh, about this one in particular at this moment in time. Um, it's that time of year. Barnes & Noble coming out of the gate hot. Usually it's Publishers Weekly that does the first best books. Well, maybe it's Publishers Weekly that does the first best books of the year in the fall. It's like that stuff starts dropping like late September, early yeah. October anymore. Um, but Barnes & Noble has decided to grace us with their list of the best books of 2020 so far. You know, we're three weeks from the end of the of the halfway point. They know what books are coming out. Ain't no surprises going to be <laughs> unleashed upon the world here. They do their reviewing and buying earlier. I think this is fair. I'm not I'm not mad about it. It feels no. like the beginning of summer is a right time to go take a look back. And maybe we will ourselves when it comes to our own reading. Um, and uh, and Book Riot itself will have a, a mid-year check in which maybe we can hook uh, our own thinking onto. Um before we talk specific titles, anything to say about the list? What's your relative surprise level? Scale of one to 10. 10 being oh. um, anime I shocked and in, in one being I could have filled this out with a pencil and paper uh, two weeks ago. I don't think I have any anime eyes of shock on this. There are some surprises, I guess, to me, some titles that I haven't seen be super popular and that could they could be super popular and i've just missed them uh, but daughter of the moon goddess by su lin tan is one of these in the top 10 i had not heard of that uh, and skandar and the unicorn thief by af stedman i'd also not heard of middle grade title outside yeah. of our and right radar. interesting to see a middle grade title make the top 10 um sadly this list doesn't come with commentary from Barnes and Noble about why, which is always the thing that I want, especially when it's a book that I'm unfamiliar with. Like, what is, tell me, why is it on the top 10? Because I want to get excited and interested in it. Um, I guess I'm interested to see that To Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara yep. is one of them because that was the, you know, the reviews, the discourse around Yanagihara was, I think, bigger than the book at the time that it came out. And a lot of, this is huge. This is either brilliant or maybe it's bad. Maybe it's both. I don't know. People felt like very, it seemed very shrug and confused mm -hmm. about their own responses to it. And I know that you had a like really interesting, complex reading experience. It's evolving, Rebecca. It's evolving. With it. Yeah, and that is interesting in itself, that we're now several months out from mm -hmm. you having read it and your relationship to it is continuing to evolve. That makes me more likely to spend 800 pages of reading time <laughs> to figure out what that's all about. It's really fiction-heavy. There's, I think, only yes. one nonfiction title yeah is that the only, i will die in a foreign land yes yeah, yeah only one nonfiction title um i guess not too surprised to see emily henry book lovers no nope, that's a novel too sorry on I'm here wrong. oh it is die so in it's, a foreign land. wow so they're all fiction i looked at i was trying to find a tab for the best fiction of the year everything else on this list link in the show notes is always bookwrite.com mm -hmm. slash listen i was like where's the fiction or was the yeah, nonfiction or they, kids books or they break up else? the best of the year at the end of the year into yeah. different genres and categories, but it looks like maybe this half year check-in is just these 10 titles. Um, 
other, I guess, notably, when Publishers Lunch covered this earlier this week, they shared the list of what were the best ones of the year so far last June from Barnes & Noble and noted that only one of those, and it was Crying in H Mart, that was on the mid-year uh. check-in, made it to the end-of-year check-in. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see that because there's some big ones on here. The Candy House, Jennifer Egan, Sea of Tranquility, like some of the, I think, you know, award contender fiction, um, primarily those two are on this list. What about you? What's interesting? Yeah, it reminds me of the Academy Award race. And sometimes movies can be penalized for coming out too early in the year. So that's Mm -hmm. why there's always the, let's release it on December 31st or Christmas Day, just so it's eligible. But then it's top of mind when people are talking about it. Um, I thought the list was sort of half predictable, right? Mm -hmm. I would have been shocked. I think I would have been generally shocked when I looked at it, see if Tranquility were on here, wasn't on here. Not because I think it's going to be one of the best books of the year, though I might say that but because it's the kind of book that gets put on best books of the year list by Barnes and Noble. We talked mm-hmm. about this when we talked about Sea of Tranquility in the, in the Patreon bonus episode. Um, I was really glad to see To Paradise. Um, I was actually, you know, this is how I kind of go. Usually if I finish a book at all, it grows in my estimation over time. Maybe there's some sort of endowment effect, uh, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to bring the great DK uh, into the mix here a little bit. Um, you know, a couple I had, I think I've heard of all of them, except I Will Die in a Foreland by Kalani Pickhart, pardon me. I had seen some talk about Daughter of the Moon Goddess, mm-hmm. and this Skandar one, they spent money on. It was on its own thing in the Barnes & Noble, it was like one of those co-op titles in the Barnes & Noble kids section the other day I was there. It was on the cover of Publishers Weekly. Oh, yeah. I saw and- some of their ads for it. So, again... That's not to say it's not really good, but it was trying to get itself surfaced. Let's well, put it and this way. notes that it's the one available on the list here is a Barnes and Noble exclusive edition of that. So there is, and it's also a Barnes and Noble exclusive edition of Sea of Tranquility and Holly on the Holly Black and, too, and the Book Holly of Black. Night. Yeah. So this is also a trend that seems to be increasing. Barnes and Noble doing exclusive editions of these books. Um, I think what makes them exclusive is like back matter interviews with the author, that kind of thing. I'll have to go back to my hardcover of Sea of Tranquility and see what made it special. Um, Cause I did pick it up at Barnes and Noble yeah, not super surprising. I'm I'm interested in Emily Henry Book Lovers being on this list. I believe that's going to be one of the most popular books of the year. Still selling, by the way. Yeah, selling very well. But top 10 best so far? I don't know. Also, the field has been kind of soft so far in 2021. I think it's just starting to pick up with yeah. some of the bigger... The day, I think it was April 15th, that we got Sea of Tranquility and the Candy House was like the first big day for mm. sort of literary fiction, which, of course, is not the only kind of fiction that can be a best book of the year. Um, but I've been hearing, as I said last week, mixed reviews about book lovers. So I'm, I have like half an eyebrow raised at that. And like, is it maybe on this list because it's surging on... TikTok and it was like, well, at least if we put this on this list, people will click on it and buy it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I like think, think you're helping is... TikTok at this point. You're not helping TikTok. <laughs> TikTok has helps you. Oh no, no, I think yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Like if they're, oh, you know, I see. you know, oh, I saw that on TikTok and now here it is on mm. Barnes and Noble's best of. TikTok is helping you. Yeah, um, I, we've heard mixed things too. On the other hand, it could be the kind of thing that's a cr- crowd pleasers are fine. I like the mix here: crowd pleaser, lit fic. You know, Egan's pretty experimental, as we talked about. The Candy mm-hmm. House is. You got to you got yeah, you to bring mix. your you got to bring your um got to bring your tools uh, and, to get through that and, and find it rewarding and very heavily by female authors yes. um maybe entirely by female authors I don't know if A F Stedman the author of Skandar is I know the, what the gender what A F Stedman's gender is um 
but that's nice to see. I, I realized looking at this also that we are approaching a place with best of lists from big retailers where I no longer open them like with my fingers over my face worried that it's going to be all white or heavily white and um, they're getting better at representation on these and there are several books by people of color on this list so that's nice to see too and you know what brought that really home to me and I'm sure you had the same experience when we were looking at the top 200 most popular books from 2000 mm -hmm. it's a completely completely different world um, which we'll talk about I think Probably it's it's notable to bring that there too. Yeah, so it's a nice mix. We've got The Hacienda by Isabel Canas. I have heard of. Interesting. It's a ghost story. Not typically my thing, but I heard it's very, very good. I remember reading the pre-pub stuff for that. Um, but we have a nice mix. We have some spec fic. We do get a, a, a middle grade book. Lit fic. Um, you know, um, novels from around the world a little bit. Multiple yeah. perspectives. I think it's a cool list. You could, do, you could do a lot worse. There's not one of these. I guess the only... There's not any of these that I'm like, uh, maybe not. I would read any of these. I'll read Book Lovers eventually. I will just to get on the, on yeah. the zeitgeisty thing. Once I, you know, if I can find a 4.99 deal in August, I'll <laughs> load up on my Kindle and read it with a um, mixed drink out on the back. But I think a pretty good list. I it is interesting. This is um, MV uh, BBL, which is minimum viable best book list. Because you're right. There's no. <laughs> There's no attribution. There's only yeah, 10. There's no there's discussion. No, right. Uh, and there's no, pretty like, interesting. there's no memoir. There's no big, like, juicy nonfiction. Um, I, I would love to hear their editorial team talk about sort of the function of this mm -hmm. list um, in the same way that we are curious usually about what an awards committee is trying to achieve with the choices that they make uh, in terms of which books to award. And so like, is this, uh, you know, all book stuff at this point is about discoverability when you're a, a retail website trying to help people buy books and get them to convert to things. But is this about just the best 10 so far um, in terms of what they, they think about is like literary quality and entertainment? Or are we particularly thinking about the fact that this list is coming out in June, it's the beginning of summer break. People are picking books to take on their summer vacations or to read in their downtime. And the kind of material that people tend to want to read in this time of the year is different than maybe the appetites we have in December at the end of the year when it's cold and we're in best books Oscar mode. Um, I just am curious about sort of all the vectors of input about this decision. In terms of star rating, um, you know, take it for what it what you will the highest ranked in terms of the most out of five stars book lovers is four and eight tenths of a star it, mm -hmm. they don't give us a numerical value I'm, I'm judging here so is lessons in chemistry it looks like it's about the same by bonnie garmus which is on my list as well book of night is four and a tenth of a star it looks like I think Sea of Tranquility has a little bit more of that fifth star than any of other books I think you're on right. here, which makes total sense to me. Scander and the Unicorn Thief, four and a half. Daughter of the Moon Goddess, four and three quarters. And not surprisingly to me at all is that Candy House and To Paradise are the lowest ranked, just a straight up four stars. They're just more difficult. Yeah, first, there's a meaningful for those. There's a meaningful number of people that are going to low rank because it's tougher sledding. I think that is both understandable but I am not going to compare the star rating of To Paradise with Book Lovers. Just not going to Agreed. do it. It's not the same thing at all. It's yeah. not fair to anyone. I Will Die in a Foreign Land, the one we really hadn't heard of, no stars, which means I think there's no ratings on it, which is um, makes it even more interesting to me that uh, this is a... brand new. Maybe it's... Let me, let me take a quick look here. This is good yeah, radio. Yeah, clicking on it too. Uh, yeah, interesting. Good Lord. Barnes & Noble, what are you doing? The public... public 
publication date. That is the word I'm trying to say. Is October 19th, 2021? Did we do our homework here, Rebecca? What is happening? Why does it say that? Oh, that's weird. When I click on the paperback, it says I can have expedited delivery by June 14th. Something's oh, happening. that was the ebook. Maybe it was available internationally or something earlier. It's $2 radio, so it's a small press. Oh, okay. Um, that could also be bad metadata. I don't know. But yeah, you're right. Now they'll get publication date for the print cover or the, the hardcover. Is it hardcover? No, paperback. Paperback original um, yeah. was May 10th, 2022. Okay, so it's not brand, brand new. But if it's a small press, that makes sense. And I think especially uh, $2 radio, a lot of those buyers tend to shop in indie bookstores or even, yes. directly, even directly from the press. Yeah. So that makes sense to me that we don't have an established sales and rating history for it on the Barnes & Noble website. It'd be really interesting to come back and check in a couple of months and mm. see if that picks up. Like what kind of surfacing does being on this list actually provide for a title? So I think I think it's been a pretty good year in books so far. I mean, any year you get I get an Egan, a Yanagihara, and a, a Mandel. Yeah, in the, the first five months of the year, I am happy. I'm happy. And I've read some other good stuff too. Okay. Um, so there you go. Uh, let's see. Oprah, you found Oprah. this in Publishers yes, Lunch. Fascinating. Yeah. What right? do you make of this? Tell the people you know, what it is and then tell me your take because I'm not sure what well, I'm thinking about this. We were just wondering not too long ago, like, what is going on with Oprah Book Club picks? Mm -hmm. are, are there new ones? Are people paying attention to them if there are new ones? And so the first answer is yes there are new ones she is still doing them the next pick is a novel called night crawling by leela motley and um, she's a 19 year old debut novelist and the youngest author that oprah has ever selected for her club and there's a wonderful quote from her that was in publisher's lunch where apparently the way that she found out that she was going to be an oprah pick is that she thought she was getting on a zoom call to have a regular meeting with her publisher and oprah was there <laughs> And, oh. Right. And she says it was the surprise of a lifetime. Um, and then they noted in Publishers Lunch that if you've been wondering about the Apple TV versions of Oprah's last three picks, um, they're not available on Apple TV. What they had been doing was like every time there was an Oprah pick, there was an interview on Apple TV with Oprah and the author. Um, they did some she did like a multi installment series for one of the books um, and a, a whole bunch of other kinds of covers. And then even at the time that she was going to select American Dirt and then everything blew up around that book, they did. She did an interview with the author and there was there was some stuff happening there. But apparently the last three picks are just not going to be um, on Oprah TV. The, the show wrapped its first season um, with Richard Powers, whose book, um, not it's not Amazement. It's something like Amazement <laughs> came out. The Overstory? No, it was a new one. Um, oh, in October of last year, it's some synonym for amazement <laughs> i'm not gonna look it up come back <laughs> to me in a little bit me. continue yeah um but it's not gonna uh it's not gonna pick up i, I guess a spokesperson confirmed to publishers lunch that opradaily.com is now the primary home for oprah's book club and the author interviews moving forward and that apple is quote still supporting the book selections on their apple books vertical so Something has happened between in maybe either Apple's interest in hosting these um, or Oprah's interest in hosting them on Apple. But it sounds like, you know, video interview TV coverage of Oprah's book stuff is no longer a thing on Apple TV. I would assume that is at least partially related to viewer interest or the lack thereof. Mm. Um, 
And I mean, just the fact that we do this for a living and we were wondering what Oprah was up to is maybe indicative of that as well. Um, It's still exciting if you are a 19-year-old debut novelist to be Oprah's book club pick, but how much exposure that gets now or not um, does seem to have shifted, I think, meaningfully, Um, really since her show went off the air. um, And then as she's experimented, I think, with different places to do features like that um just being online or being on a platform like apple tv where you're competing with all the other stuff that's on apple tv and all the other stuff that's available on tv it's just a totally different media landscape than when oprah was you know when you i came home from elementary school and turned on oprah at four o'clock every afternoon and, and watched what was happening so i don't know i feel like i'm not worried oprah's fine mm-hmm. and i think uh Books are fine. Lots of great books are being surfaced by other kinds of celebrity book clubs and books are appearing in the New York Times and the Atlantic just increased their book coverage. And we are here doing this. I'm not too worried about books either. But interesting to see this. It feels to me like sort of the waning of a of what was once a really significant part of the landscape. Hi, I'm Jeff. Uh, I'm from Portland. I've, I've got two comments and a question for the, <laughs> for the panel. Okay. My, my first is, I think it is bewilderment. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Is that what you, yes, I, I is that what, is that what you said? Amazement. I, said I think I that might close. be right. Okay. I'm not, I'm trying not to look. So I'm sorry. Is, yeah. that, okay, that's it. So that's comment number one. Comment number two is a 19-year-old debut novelist having Oprah show up on a Zoom. Top five most unfixable face moments yeah. that you can imagine. Oh, 100%. <laughs> so those are my two comments. My question is this. Did Oprah and Apple get what they want from the Apple mm. TV partnership? Okay, everything comes to an end. But what did I assume what Oprah got was a bag of money. Yeah. I don't know what else she would want from this. She could make this show herself, right? And put it on the website. She could put it anywhere she wants, PBS, any place. That was Apple a particular thing. Apple TV Plus, remember this was the this was in the launch content stuff mm-hmm. for Apple TV Plus. And I think it gave them two things right away that was worth whatever happened, even if no one watched it. It gave them good press releases. Oprah yes. is a big deal. And two, they could spin it up quickly starting next month because it's, it's her and Coates sitting in a chairs in a well-lit theater. You can sp- That's not uh, For All Mankind Season 3, which I'm very excited <laughs> for to come out on, on Friday. Like You can get that going in a few weeks once the deal is done. So you can spin it up quickly, get to name recognition, and it's instant credibility of this is a serious thing with serious people right away and I would almost guess if no one watched this thing that Apple TV got what they wanted out of it that's my sense of it right now I think that's right and I'm not really worried for Oprah or Apple here I don't think either of them needs the other worried lord no yes yeah yeah and Apple you know the Apple TV content was a little bit softer at the start in terms of how compelling the offering was against like what HBO Max was doing at the same time um, and what was happening on some of the cable and especially what was happening just in like regular HBO and AMC at the moment. But there was Oprah. There were a few other things. I think it took Apple like a year or two to get cooking, but now they're cooking like there's yep. Pachinko and Severance. They had um, the after party. They've got a, you know, Dickinson, which we know I love a bunch of other great things. And I think this could just have been the natural end of like, we got what we needed. We don't need to renew it. Um, I saw, I did watch Oprah do like a great interview, I think with Barack Obama, where they were doing it in early COVID, but with green screens and like special Mm. magic green screen technology that made it look like, like they had gotten the same furniture and put it in, in a green screen room and it made it look like they were sitting in the same space. And I remember thinking that's what you can do with Apple money. (laughs) 
It's that's, like that's really like, true. That I was having the whole like meta experience. Like, okay, so someone picked these two chairs and made sure Oprah and Barack have the same chair and the same side table and the same water glass. Unbelievable. And they're yeah, doing this whole thing. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I think I think you're onto something here. Oprah and Apple, I think, got what they wanted. Nobody's really the worse for wear. Even if no one ever pays attention again to a single one of Oprah's book club picks, Oprah's going to do just fine. And it's just a much more crowded. Uh, I keep saying the word landscape, but it's much more crowded now to oh. be anybody who's trying to be an influencer around books. She's competing with the Today Show and Reese and also TikTok. Can I, uh, on a moment of social media integration stuff, I was thinking about this in regards to this story the other day. I was, you know, scrolling Instagram as one does the other day. And I saw, I don't, Jennifer Garner's fine. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm kind of the median Jennifer Garner fan. I'll watch her. She seems fine. I have no real strong opinion. <laughs> But a sponsored video for some KitchenAid or what, some kitchen appliance. And she's doing a whole song and dance about making a drink. And it's, and she's in the orchard and she's coming back and blah, blah, you know, she's really, and she's to music and she's smiling that big girl next door smile that she has. And she was working real hard in that social. <laughs> and I was like, I can't imagine Oprah doing that. No. Like this, she wants to be in a leather chair in her nice, you know, beautiful summer linen thing that she's wearing outside with Barack Obama, with her glasses asking interesting and approachable, but also not totally softball questions. She's trying to create a moment in a relationship there. It feels to me like not only is Oprah in a different mode, but the kind of the kind of thing that influencers are doing is not something Oprah inter- wants to do anymore. It's, it, yeah. I don't even she, well, she maybe she could pick up the sword and wield it if she wanted to really start doing, you know, uh, following trends and, and tags and memes and stuff. But, you know, at some point, you don't have to do that anymore. And the influencing game has, has moved on. I mean, I wonder if you are you now, which you are, by the way, that's how you, <laughs> existence works. It's like, do I need to have an existential crisis? If, you, if right now you were in high school, the same mm-hmm. Rebecca Shinsky with all the pieces that made you you, but dropped in now, book nerd and everything. Are you reading It Ends With Us or are you looking to the bewilderment pick by Rich, by Rich, uh, by Richard Powers that Oprah made? Oh, yeah. I'd absolutely be reading the TikTok pick because yep, that's, that's right. what teenage me would be paying attention to yep. today. And I think the influencer word is really interesting here because Oprah was an influencer before anybody was we, trying we to be an influencer. Word. didn't even have the word. Right. We didn't have the word. She was just a popular person who people trusted. And she would do those, you know, Oprah's favorite things episodes where it was like, these are just the pajamas I like. And now everybody gets a pair of them. And everyone who wasn't in the audience that day was like trying to figure out the closest Macy's they could go to so they could buy the Oprah pajamas. And that kind of organic influence is still the thing that nobody on social media has been able to capture and replicate. It's really different from Jennifer Garner got paid to talk about the yep. KitchenAid or, right. you know, that TikTok influencer that you're watching got paid to talk about a particular book or like my favorite go-to example is like those modern dancers that I follow who for some reason are doing Charmin ads in their Instagrams. Like that's, it's, it's like shilling and that's mm. fine. Everybody's got, like, make your money. But it's really, that's really different from how Oprah's book club originated and really how any of the recommendations she gave originated. Like, as far as the general public knows, there were, there was no money changing hands for her to talk about any of those things. That was just, I've got a platform. Here is some stuff I like. Let me share it with my yeah. audience. And it, it feels very, like, late stage capitalism to me when I scroll Instagram and I see stuff like, 
like a sitcom star hawking some product that has absolutely nothing to do with like anything they've ever performed in or anything we know about them it's just like they're famous and they have followers and the brand wants access to those followers like okay but i don't trust it i don't know how many people do yeah and the the confederation of influencers right i mean there is don't get me wrong enormously enormously Mm -hmm. um influential influencers but in the book space no one approaches oprah even reese who i think is probably the number one with the bullet now can't do what she does but it's much more it's much more than algorithmic network effect virality, right? Like it takes mm-hmm. some time. No matter what Oprah picked in 1998 that month, it was going to sell extremely well. Now you need a real groundswell interconnection, the right person to see a nice thing, people like it. I think people still generally have to have a good experience with the book in, mm-hmm. in an interesting way for them to continue. But then it builds on itself and it becomes, that's why it's the hurricane. It, it gathers strength over the Caribbean and the water is still warm and that makes it even stronger. And then the <laughs> winds really start picking up and there's... It's different now. I think the influencing world is much more important in selling books, but it's not singularly drivable and understandable in a way that it was, um, especially when Oprah was at her peak. That singularly word is really important there, that we still had basically a monoculture when Oprah was on the air on on network television doing her book club. And it was the thing, you know, you could go to work the next day and like talk about what was on Oprah the the day before and several people probably would have seen it. And that's just not the case with anything anywhere in media now, unless you're like the Game of Thrones finale. And even that was a minuscule minuscule audience compared to some of the bigger moments in TV in the 70s, 80s and 90s. We're going to take a, another sponsor break. We're going to do one more news story that I'm going to bring back an old segment <gasps> format for Rebecca. Ooh, I'm excited. That we've never done on the pod. This is from the early days of the site itself. Okay. I just thought of this on the fly. We're going Great. to see how it goes. That's what we call a tease right now. So listen <laughs> to the sponsor, too. you animals, before we get to that. In ongoing questions for us, we've talked about this before. Spotify plus audiobooks equals question mark. Mm-hmm. Right. This is something I dropped this in. I don't know if you had a chance to look at this at all. If you haven't, I can vamp for a second while you while you while you uh, surreptitiously scan it. Long story short, this is the Hot Pod newsletter, which I really like. The Verge mm-hmm. does this. Ariel Shapiro is the current writer. I think she might be re- she might be moving on or some change. But anyway, I really like this. It's a newsletter. It also appears on TheVerge.com, their own site. I subscribe to it myself and I get it and make sure I see it. But I'm linking here to the publicly available one, or they're all publicly available, just the linkable one. Anyway, um, the on Wednesday, so just yesterday, June 7, 2022, company executives pitched the audiobooks business to investors. To investors. That's the part that really mm-hmm. – this wasn't a big media thing where we're like we're trying to gin up interest. This is we're saying to the people who give us money, this is a big enough deal that you should care about it, and we're going to keep track it, and we're going to focus on it. I have not heard this out of Spotify before. We've seen some of these um, initial fumblings about getting a uh, celebrity to narrate Jane, Jane Eyre. I'd love mm-hmm. to. We don't know anything about this. There's some pretty good productions on there that's included in your Spotify subscription there. But here's here's the CEO, Daniel Eck, said, We believe that audiobooks in their many different forms will be a massive opportunity. And just as we've done with podcasting, expect us to play to win chills rebecca what are we do what are we doing what's going to happen i don't know they say later in the piece that they're looking at bringing ad monetization to audiobooks which is positioned at least in by the writer of this piece as that might bring down the cost of audiobooks for the user and, mm. and audiobooks ain't cheap so if you can subsidize your access to them by listening to ads instead that might be very interesting my my first, maybe my only question about this is 
what does this look like inside the subscriber model? Like yep. I've had that's the Sp- one question. I think that's I've, it. Yeah, I've had Spotify Premium for like a decade. I'm probably going to give them fifteen bucks a month until the heat death of the universe. Um, what do I have to do as an audiobook listener if I if they get all these books in? Is it add? <clears throat> excuse me. Is it add five bucks a month to my subscription fee and then I get to listen to one title? It, do I have to listen to ads in them or will there be a, a, a premium version where I could pay to not have to listen to the ads? Like, I want to know that before I have any opinions, I think, about will this work or not? Because for all the annoying pieces of dealing with like Audible, which is the biggest player yep. um, and the pricing is the most annoying piece about Ugh. dealing with Audible. <laughs> I like I like Libro FM a lot. It's easier. I think the, the pricing structure is better. You're not stuck in credits per book like mm-hmm. you're stuck with um, with Audible, but it's still expensive relative to other types of media like those platforms are they function really well. I'm comfortable with using them. I really like Spotify, but like I don't want to erode my audio listening experience. So can I get an ad-free listening experience for a comparable price? I'd be open to putting all my audio in one place. I am too. I was going to say the exact same thing. If I can spend, here's the thing. Audiobooks are a commodity, Mm -hmm. right? It's in the interest of the publisher to put them in the places that people will pay the money they want for them. So if that's Libro, that's Downpour, that's Barnes & Noble, that's Kobo, that's Apple Books. I'm just naming the platforms, but you get my point here. They're all providing essentially the same good. If I want to listen to uh, The Monster's Bones is what I'm listening to right now, um, which is about the discovery and the importance of the discovery of a T-Rex uh, skeleton. That sounds a, good. You know, paleontology for the win. Um, it doesn't matter. It's the same product no matter mm-hmm. where I get it. And so what then introduces a reduction in friction for me. And so some of that friction could be pricing. If you charge me a few dollars less, that reduces my friction in terms of my available resource to buy it. Or you make it easy to buy and put it where I'm already going. So Spotify is clearly leading from the front in being the, the app to go when you want to hear crap, right? Well, you want to hear crap, you go to Spotify. You yeah. don't think about Audible in the same way. We've talked about this before. There's really no reason Audible couldn't have been it, but they didn't worry. They weren't looking at music licensing and doing everything else. They were late on podcasts. And now, disruption from the below, the freemium model, now you can say, and for fourteen ninety five a month, you get one audiobook credit if you just do this plus one in Spotify. I would do it tomorrow. I think I would, Rebecca. I just think yeah, I would. I think I would, too. I'm really curious about whether they'll introduce a licensing, like, audiobook rental kind of option. Um, that's one thing that we really haven't seen haven't outside seen. of a library anywhere else. Yep. Like, I... My my personal use case, I don't care about owning the audiobook. I have to own them if I want it from Audible or Libro. That's just the byproduct of using that service is that then you have it forever. But I very rarely have any desire to go back. I would be quite happy if I could pay something in my Spotify subscription to listen to an audiobook and then after a certain to have like maybe two weeks or whatever to listen to it and then send it back to them and not have to pay the full list price because I don't want to own it and then also not just have to like have that file forever um, that would be it would be interesting to me to see them disrupt that model in some way and offer something like that too that's going to be a supplier side thing I don't mm-hmm. think audiobooks yeah, would do be... that just because they already you got to pay 15 to essentially rent it I mean I guess you own it but you don't re-listen to well, the audiobook over and over again that'll right that'll be a question akin to I think what was going on with the ebook subscription services yeah. that you know now are basically defunct at least in the US because the publishers wouldn't agree to those terms that let listeners pay a flat fee and then access however many they wanted but Spotify has made 
their business on paying music studios, you know, fees based on the listens to songs. And I would be fat. What, how many ads would you listen to? Mm-hmm. I, I would be fascinated to hear. I can't imagine. I mean, it would be great for me as a listener. I don't know what to do to the dollars. If Spotify essentially treats all of my listening minutes the same, mm. right? So if I'm paying for my premium service, my podcast listening is the same as my um, music listening is the same as my audiobook listening. I guess, interestingly, if I'm listening to a podcast through Spotify, even if it's a Spotify podcast, it still has ads most yes. of the time. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Right? Mm-hmm. So very interesting to see. These people are, this This is an interesting war. This to me is more interesting right now than the video streaming war because now oh, yeah. we've kind of, we've ta- we're tapering off there. Netflix took the first bullet, right? But I think it's coming for a lot of these services. And did you see yesterday the Disney's chief content officer got fired this morning? Yes. Which was really surprised with no lot. notes. I don't know, but that was, it's one of those things that happened so fast with no notes. I don't know if it's malfeasance or was it a performance or what else is going on here? But in our space, what we talk about on this show, and, and frankly, I listen to more hours of audiobooks per week than I watch TV or, or movies. Mm-hmm. That's where I am right now. And podca- if you throw podcasts into my audio entertainment, it's really um, a lot more. What's this going to look like? I hate Audible's membership thing, even though I do it because it's simple and they have the most things. And they have enough. They do have enough Audible original exclusives that every now and again, I, there's something I'm looking for that the audio is only available on audio on Audible. I don't like that. But they've got me because I prioritize reading the book I want when I want to when I want to watch it or listen to it ver- versus everything else. But the war for the ear mm-hmm. is really, really. I mean, it's here. It's not just heating up. This is the the interesting frontier. So I have a quiz for all the listeners out there. Rebecca, you've seen this. Think to yourself. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question. Think what you would guess, and I'll tell you the answer in a second. A- according to Edison Research, which market is bigger in the U.S. Podcasts or audiobooks? I'll give you. I, I'd insert the Jeopardy music here if it wasn't a fair use problem. But <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying. You can you can hum along to yourself. Are we done? We're getting close. No, there's there's another couple of measures. Okay. All right. Have you guessed? You got your guess Ding. out there. Podcast or audiobook? The answer is audiobooks are slightly larger. 1.6 billion in 2021. The podcast market is 1.45 billion. I think it does matter, though, that those dollars come from different places. In terms of minutes listened to, I'm sure podcasts are way bigger. Mm-hmm. But the revenue per minute of production is way lower because most of them are free or ad-supported, where the audiobooks, a lot of them are $14. So if you're looking at you know, your average really 7 to 10-hour audiobook at 15 bucks, you're paying 2 bucks an hour to listen to. So maybe we could back it out that way. Audiobook market grew by 25% in 2021. That is a huge, huge number. Audiobooks continue to really grow. And then into the future, I think this is where Spotify is really seeing it is like, not just now, but what it could be in the future. We need to be here. We need to have a presence. I would guess they're looking at Audible. Which one of us, can they mm-hmm. can they get to podcasts and music before we can get to audiobooks? Yeah, I Don't think know. that's right. Okay. Are you ready for a segment we haven't done in a while? You may not even remember this, Rebecca, but that's fine. <laughs> A surprise segment from a thing we used to do on the site maybe 10 years ago? Sure, yeah, why not? I got, a piece, I got a piece of paper and I got a pen here. And it relates to our last story here, which is the news that um, Catherine Hahn will star in yes. an adaptation of Tiny Beautiful Things. Um, 
a book by Cheryl Strayed, not a novel <laughs> by Cheryl Strayed, as it says in this piece mm-hmm. in Collider. Um, I think in this in this situation where they got that wrong, I will not say the person's name, but you can yes. see the link in the show notes there. So what we're going to play is, do you remember the confidence index? Do you know I what do we used to do this? I do remember the confidence index, yes. So here we go. We're going to play the confidence index with this adaptation of Tiny Beautiful Things. And what the confidence index would do would rate on a scale of one to five the various pieces that we know about an upcoming adaptation to get a number about how confident we are in this adaptation being good, okay? So what we know so far, we know what the original author is. So that's that's one. Mm-hmm. We know what the property is. So that's two. I'm writing them down, and then I'm going to record your scores because you, okay. you're going to give me the scores. Um, we also know the star mm-hmm. at this point. We know the platform, you know, platform slash yes. um, format, right? So we know it's on Hulu, and it's going to be, well, we'll talk about it in a minute. And the last one, of course, is the uh, other creatives. So producers, directors, you know, everything else like that. So that mm-hmm. is a, um, those, those are the five categories, author, property, star, platform, and other creatives, one to five, one being no confidence, five being I would bet a substantial part of whatever I have to wager on it. So do you want me to just go one, you want me to go down? Yeah, do you want to start somewhere? Or would you let's like to run, go? Let's just run the, let's just run the board. All right, strayed. Kind of, this one's a little, this one's a little inseparable from the property, but let's do it just for a minute here. So author Cheryl Strayed, on a scale of one to five, how much confidence does a Cheryl Strayed property, her involvement, her sensibility, her worldview, in this moment, on a scale of one to five, give you that this will be a good thing? Four and a half. Four and a half. Talk about that half star. That's the interesting part. Why not a five? I love Cheryl Strayed. I'm, you know, very attached to her, but also Tiny Beautiful Things is like almost 10 years old now. Um, The show well this is more about the adaptation piece maybe i think cheryl Strayed continues to be wonderful the source text is wonderful i have a lot of faith in her but in this particular moment like culture has maybe moved beyond the moment we were in where where we needed where cheryl Strayed or had like we ever let me get it right everybody needs cheryl Strayed probably all the time but like the moment we were in in the culture where Tiny Beautiful Things and Dear Sugar and Cheryl Strayed made a splash was a different kind of culture. And we have a bunch of other voices that are also offering that kind of wisdom. Uh, so not a full five, but I think like four and a half. I think that's right. It feel, Cheryl Strayed feels a little 2014 in all the good ways. Yeah. yeah. That's fine. I think that's worth, I may would have gone four, but I hear you. Mm-hmm. How about the property? Tell For people who don't know what Tiny Beautiful yeah, Things, okay. let's correct their record here. What so, is it? And then... <laughs> What's your one to five confidence on it being the subject, the property? Tiny Beautiful Things is a collection of basically essays that Cheryl Strait originally wrote for The Rumpus under the Dear Sugar column, which was in name and advice column, but not like Ann Landers. So people Mm -hmm. would write in with their, the, the one that I remember most clearly because several friends have referred back to it repeatedly is somebody writes in with a question like, um, I'm married to this really good man. He's a he's a good man. Our marriage is fine. Oh yeah. But I want to leave. And like I feel bad because he's fine and mm-hmm. he hasn't done anything awful. But I I want to go. And Cheryl Strayed writes back functionally wanting to leave is enough, but she says that in like a 3000 word gloriously beautiful essay filled with reflections from her own life drawing from other writers and other wisdom and various like faith traditions and all sorts of just really grounded, empathetic, compassionate 
advice um, that, that turns out to not really be advice so much as like validation of whatever the, right. the person who wrote in validation of their feeling. This is a real thing you have. This is a hard thing you have. Making that decision is tough. But this is there's a very like, here's the deal to Cheryl Strayed, you know, um, which is a thing I personally appreciate. Mm -hmm. But tiny, beautiful things. I think it, it's hard to imagine this property as an adaptation. There was a I know there was a stage play of it a few years ago that yeah. was, I think, primarily in Portland. I didn't get to see it. Sounds about um, right. Yeah, but it's it's both easy and difficult to imagine how to adapt something like mm -hmm. that. Like, is it about the writer, the person who's is that the Catherine Hahn character? Is she the person writing these letters back to people? Or are they, is it, is it like standalone capsule episodes where each half hour is about one situation from one of these essays and maybe her input or commentary or something around it? So I, I think I have the most question marks about how do you adapt that content to something you can see on screen? I'm going to say three and a half out of five. Three and a half, that, that's higher than I would do. I was going to suggest to you, and you can, you can revise this if you'd like. I was going to yoke this with the platform format question, mm -hmm. the category here because what you're circling around is we don't know what this is, right? Because it's, it's, a, it's a not a novel. It's a half hour comedy. It's a half hour comedy. But we know it's a half hour, but what does that mean? Is it like mm -hmm. modern love? Right. Which it could be like an anthology mm -hmm. show. I think if mm -hmm. I knew that today, I would give a higher ranking. Yeah. But if they're trying to make it into... I don't know, mom, that Alice and Janney thing with Anna oh, Ferris. That's a, yeah. you know, that's the disaster version of this. I think I would give both the property and the platform three, because okay. there's a version of this that could be very cool. But I'm I'm going to suggest that. Like, do you want to give? Where do you want to put the risk? Because three and a half on the property is not that much risk, though. This feels very risky. Are you going to put the <laughs> risky element on the platform format? What's what? What number do you want to assign to platform or format? It's going to be Hulu, half-hour comedy series. We know Catherine Hahn's attached. We don't know if she, like you said, is she Deer Sugar? Is she strayed right. on her keyboard we and we're doing a Sex in the City type thing where then we go to the rest of the story that's out there in the universe? We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. And like, confusingly, the still photo that's used at the top of this Collider piece <laughs> so is Catherine confusing. Hahn from, from the Mrs. Fletcher Tom Parada adaptation that she did on HBO where she's like, a woman having a sexy midlife crisis. Yeah. And that is not what Tiny Beautiful Things is going to be It's not what about. this is. Well, the place I think it has the most risk here is the word comedy. Yeah. For what Tiny Beautiful Things is. I so, think it's got to be a two. If you've got three and a half on property, yeah. I think we have to put a two yeah. here until we know I think more, you're right? right. I think you're right. I have a lot of faith in Hulu. They've done some wonderful yeah. series and originals and adaptations. I'm nervous about making tiny beautiful things into a half hour comedy yeah let's go on to creatives then so if the platform and format is a two the creatives i think then buttress our confidence mm -hmm. a little bit we're maybe on the higher end of the scale here because these are people we've got reese witherspoon and laura dern which is interesting i think it looks like they had some collaboration around wild with strayed maybe they've even yes. optioned this who knows maybe they have the option for this already they just they took the strayed canon kind of like um patrick somerville did with the uh the emily st john mandel canon Maybe Laura Dern was going to star in Wild at one point. That would have made sense, but Reese took it on herself. Uh, they did Little Fires Everywhere, the Celeste Ng adaptation, mm -hmm. which is a very good adaptation on Hulu. Yeah. Um, what do you want to do with other executives? You want to do, it sounds like we're four-ish, four plus yeah, somewhere I think, in there. I think we're in the four plus range. Where do you want to no. give me? You got it. It's plus is not a number. <laughs> 4.25. 
four and a quarter. Yeah, four and a quarter. Dern and Laura Dern and Reese Witherspoon have worked together a couple of other times in other adaptations. That she, what was it? This Laura Dern was in. One of the um, Leanne Moriarty adaptations that I think Reese Witherspoon. Oh, I didn't see any of those. Yeah, was attached to, and I think Laura Dern was Reese Witherspoon's mom in Wild. Played Cheryl Strayed's mom in Wild. Um, Wow! Yeah, right. I totally forgot about that. Liz Teagler, yeah, for Little Fires Everywhere, which was faithful. I think really faithful to the spirit of the book without being super attached to the details and Mm. minor details in some ways. That gives me a lot of faith, Um, and. And having read Little Fires Everywhere, I don't think that I would have mapped on what that eight-hour series yeah. looked like. Having read the book, how how would you turn this into eight episodes and just pick the big scenes? So I think she has a good shot at okay. doing something interesting with this. I'm Yeah, I think the creative team is strong. Four and a quarter. All right, so we're back to the, the biggest piece of news here, other than it's happening, which is Catherine Hahn is the first star, which is the language. I don't know what to do with that. But let's say for the, so knowing what you know, mm-hmm. Catherine Hahn, I guess you can think about her herself, but also what it may portend about the casting for the rest of it. So what we know right now, Catherine Hahn is the star of this adaptation. Where on the confidence spectrum do you land with her? I'm about as high on Catherine Hahn as you can get. Okay. She's That's versatile. That's a five. Are we yeah, fiving? I okay, think I'm fiving about Catherine that. Hahn. Yeah, she okay. is versatile she's really funny in several ways Um, so if this is going to be a comedy I think that she will I have a lot of faith that she'll be able to take whatever flavor of that comedy it is and deliver it um can has I think she gives good face she's able to convey a lot of emotion if she is a Cheryl Strayed character in here like Catherine Hahn doing sort of serious earthy advice giving I am here for like frankly I would pay money for her to call me and do that <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I I think she's wonderful and has a huge range and if it is more anthology or episodic but with that repeated cast maybe in those episodes having a lot of range would be important for that like if she's a different character in each episode being able to do a bunch of different things would be really important and she has that capacity so yeah yeah i'm gonna i'm a five on Catherine hahn i'm here for her it's not the most obvious i mean i don't know where i would have started if you would have, if you would have had me fill in the blank of who would be cast in this i don't know where i would start i think con is and she can hit all the pitches right she can mm-hmm. play super dramatic um i don't remember the name of that netflix movie where it was about trying to get pregnant but it was very oh, like yeah. all the sad young literary couples that might have been the title of it like it was very mm-hmm. artsy you know, it sounds like it looked, it's kind of a script that Noam Baumbach thought about, but probably didn't decide to produce himself. But she was great in it. But then she could also be super zany yeah. at the same time. So she can be manic in a good way. She can be super competent, kind of like her characters in Parks and Recreation. But she can be a little bit of a, she can tap into the messiness piece. And I think that modulation is kind of what made Tiny Beautiful Things and makes Tiny Beautiful Things yeah. special is it embraces the whole thing. There's messiness. There's competence. There's aspiration, there's reality. And somewhere is getting your arms around the whole thing. And sometimes you make bad decisions. Sometimes you make great ones. Sometimes you're stoic. Sometimes you're a blubbering mess. Um, And those are not only acceptable, but okay. But I think that kind of emotional range, and I hope we get some um, vacillation in the relative seriousness of an episode, but of a topic, and to really tap into what Han brings 
to the table. I'm not sure. I'd, see, you know me. I'm not going to give a five to anything. Ever, I know you're right. Not. I always, I always, but I, I think <laughs> I would give my version of a, a five, which is probably a four and a half there um, as well. So let me do my quick math. So that's eight for the two plus five, 6.25. This is really good podcasting. That is a 19.25. Okay. Out of a possible 25. That's a good score. I think that's so. A, I mean, that's a pretty good score. I think that's probably a little buying high, not knowing the tone or format. We're really leaning on the creatives to not do something really dumb. They're mm-hmm. not going to do that, but there's a chance no. that it doesn't work. But Reese Witherspoon hasn't borked anything yet in this space. Ooh, is that a, is that, wow, that's a, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to go, we'll have to go back to the tape at some point and look at the, the recent Reese hasn't swung at a lot of pitches of late of putting herself out well, there and being discerning. in things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, discerning. That's uh, not bad. I think that's our show, Rebecca. I think There's so. The, I want to talk about this New York Times link another time, but I think we need to do more than just mention yeah. it. I, I really want to talk about that, so we'll do that next week. As always, you can find links to this and all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. Choose an email, podcast at bookriot.com. I'm willing to entertain best books you've read so far, listeners. They have to oh, be yes. 2022. Just you get one. I'm I'm talking to you know you out there. You're like, here's my five. I'm give me one. It's it, it's it hurts me as much as it hurts you to say that, but it's for your own good. 